uh, Ephesians 4, 25 to 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Good morning. The kids are dismissed for Children's Church. Dads are giving me fist pumps. Um, they're excited about that. So as they make their way there, you can make your way in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We're going to look at Titus chapter 2, verse 15, and then we're going to actually jump into Titus chapter 3 and look at verses 1 and 2. If you don't have a physical copy of God's Word, and it's not going to be up on the screen today because the screen isn't working, you have full permission to pull out your phone and look at the passage. I will trust you that you're not playing games and messing around on it um, as well. And even with that, with the joy of having uh, our phones in our pockets, at the last song of the service, the last song is Living Hope by Phil Wickham. If you want to look that up on your phone and sing along, you can do that. Um, I'll, remind, I'll, I'll give Kendall a reminder, and he can say that again, and you can read that as well, because I don't know the lyrics super well to the songs, and I have access to stuff that you guys don't have access to, so I was just pulling up on my iPad, and I was singing with Kendall, and I thought, man, I wish everyone else could do this, um, but we'll give you that. We'll call out the song at the end of the service today, and you, can, you have full permission. Jump on your phone, read it, and you can get along, and we will get, get through this one way or the other. Well, you're playing guitar and you're multitasking up there, so it's okay. But that's the joys of church plant life. This isn't the first thing that's gone wrong. Last week, my microphone didn't work. It's just, that's what happens And when you're setting up and you're tearing down. But it's such a good opportunity. I, I really like when these things happen. I've said this before. I'll say it again. Because it's a great opportunity to remember what actually matters. What actually matters. Westernized church has become all about the production. And if it's a really good show, then that's church. And that's just not the truth. That's what we're learning in the book of Titus. We are seeing all throughout this book that this is a group of people. It's a community of faith. We are becoming a faith family together. And while Sundays do matter and they are important, they are not the end-all, be-all of church life. Church is about being united together around Christ, loving one another, and living out the scriptures that we talk about. And that's what we want to look at, and that's what we're going to look at today in Titus chapter 2, uh, verse 15, and then we'll look at Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Uh, it's a good time to remember the chapter numbers and verse numbers are not the inspired parts. That came later, that this, th- this thought really flows together, and that's why we're bringing in the text like it is, uh, breaking up that way. Well, Fred Rogers, the famous uh, host of the children's TV show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, once said that there are three ways to ultimate success. The first way is to be kind. The second way is to be kind. And the third way is to be kind. I might not know everything that Mr. Rogers meant by that, but if he's talking about what our passage is looking at this morning, then I would say I agree with him. Because we believe that Christian kindness or Christian courtesy, which is the, the title of today's message, is Christian courtesy, we find in this passage 
is the way to be successful in this life because when we are kind, we bring glory to God. And that's the point of life. The chief end of man is to bring glory to God, to know him and to enjoy him forever. We want to see that this morning, that Christian courtesy, just being a little more courteous will bring honor and glory to the Lord. I think we could all say as we look at our world now that we could use a world that's just a little bit more polite, a little bit more courteous to one another, a little more kind. And I think that's what we see here in in Titus chapter 2. But before we jump in, we have a lot of commands that are given us today. 215, 31, 32 are all these various commands that Christians are supposed to live. And what I don't want us to do is divorce those commands from what we talked about last week. That it's because grace has appeared, Jesus coming in the flesh, living the perfect life, dying on for our sin, even though he was perfect and did not deserve that, and raising him from the dead, that appearance, that happening, is what leads us to and trains us to, is what the passage before tells us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And we've been talking that through the entirety of the book of Titus. The theme that we want to see is that what we believe directly impacts the way that we behave and act. What we know to be true about God and believe in our hearts, those foundational truths, will inevitably impact the way that you live life. And so last week we talked about who God is and his saving us and the appearance of the grace of God, that he's coming again one day, that we're waiting on that blessed hope, the appearing of Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, that he was the one who redeemed us from all lawlessness, right? That's what we talked about last week. That's the gospel message. And this week we're talking about the implications of that. If that message is true, then we are to live the way that Titus 2, 15, and 3, 1, and 2 tell us to live. So we want to look at these commands, take them seriously, but not divorce them from the gospel context that they're being put into. The Bible tells us, this is who you are in Christ, be this way. It doesn't say, be this way or else. It says, I've changed you, therefore you can live this way. So let's look at Titus 2, uh, verse 15. And to three two. It says this declare these things, extort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Let's pray together. Father, as we read this text and we read these commands, God, help us see that it's grace that enables us to obey them, that it is what you've done and who we are in Christ that gives us the ability, it's enabling, and it changes our hearts so that we can do these things. Lord, I pray that we would be a people, a people zealous for good works, like Titus 2.14 tells us to be, that that's who we are, And then as we are people who are zealous to good works, that we actually see specifically what those good works are in today's passage. Help us to live this way because we love and worship the one true God. I ask this in your name. Amen. Well, the first thing that I want us to see from Christian courtesy is that Christian courtesy is bold. Christian courtesy is bold. Looking there at verse 15, it says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, Let no one disregard you. I think a lot of times when we think about politeness or kindness, courtesy, 
we kind of think of timidity, that maybe that's what it is, to just be really calm and gentle and almost maybe like become a doormat or something like that. But what we want to see is that Christian kindness, it's, it's bold. He's telling them not to whisper these things or slowly kind of say them, but he's saying declare these things. And the things that he's talking about are, are the rest of the book of Titus. It's Titus 1 and, and, and 2, he, which we, we remember back to previous sermons. We remember this island of Crete is steeped in sin in the way that they are living. They're not people that you can kind of handle with little kid gloves. They're, 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 they are rambunctious in their sin. They're, they're out about it. And so Paul is telling Titus, Titus, you have to be bold. You have to declare what is right and what is good. You have to exhort and rebuke. To exhort someone is to, to encourage them. We can think exhort them is to tell them to do the right thing. It's to declare to do what is right and what is good. And then to rebuke them is to call out when we're doing the wrong thing. It's to bring the light, the things that are wrong. And that takes an incredible amount of boldness to say, do what is right, and then say, hey, what you're doing, that's wrong. Our world doesn't like either of those things. We live in a world that says, do not tell me what to do. And you better definitely not tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. But yet, we have this gospel message that moves in us in such a way That we are told, and Titus is told, declare these things, exhort and rebuke people. And he is to do it with all authority. Well, we've got to ask the question, where does our authority really come from? In Titus 1, verse 13, we were told to rebuke them sharply. We saw and we looked at that word as as it really meant to cut. And we talked about what it looks like to, to cut, to heal, to be like a surgeon. That, yeah, we must cause the wound of rebuke, but we do it to to restore and, and bring healing into people's lives, to bring them away from sin. And what we also see in other places of the Bible is we talk about what authority looks like, particularly in the Roman world. Authority was the guy who held the sword. That's who had authority who had the weapon, the ability to do that. And as one of the songs that we sing here so eloquently puts it, it says that we wield the sword that makes the wounded whole. I love how that lyric says that. In the Bible, we see that the sword of the Spirit is sharper than the two-edged sword. And he's talking about the Bible. The Word of God is that sword, and it divides bone and marrow and soul from the Spirit. It can really pierce into who we are as people. Ephesians 6 tells us that the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is our offensive weapon. So I think as we look at this, we said we need to exhort people, and we need to rebuke people, we need to do it with all authority. We've got to use the Bible to do that. That has to be a part of our life, that that's what we are doing That we are using the word of God to exhort people and encourage them and also to admonish and rebuke them. Listen, I need this in my life. I need people to exhort and to rebuke me. And it's one thing to just kind of do that with maybe a platitude or, hey, you know, you're doing a really good job. Attaboy. That feels good and that's nice. But it's a lot different. When someone says to me something like, you know, Josh, I I was reading in the book of Mark the other day, and as Jesus was rebuking his disciples for for having little of faith through the storms of of, of the storm that rolled up in their their life, and they didn't have any faith in God, man, I'm just watching you, and you're just kind of going through this storm of life lately, and you're handling it with faith and grace, man, like, keep going. That has more power to it than, good job, attaboy. See, when we can use the Bible, it brings a breath into it because God's words are the words of eternal life. 
And it's the same is true when we need to be rebuked. If we can go and, and take that rebuke and say, listen, we have to see that our rebuking, our, our, listen, listen, brother, this is how you're not lining up with God's word. It's not me who just thinks has this opinion of you, but, but, but I want to show you, like, look what this looks like and what you're called to live and who you're called to be. It's just better. Now, the reality is, is most of us, we, we don't do that and we can't do that. Well, one, because we're not really in the Bible ourselves very much. See, when we're not in the Bible ourselves, we don't have the ability to exhort and rebuke other people. And so what I want to encourage you is this. is a lot of times we look at Bible study, like Bible study is just for me. If I, I read the Bible, and it's just to, to do that. And I think that's a great place to start, that we want to look and that when we study the Bibles, that we want to be in it, and when we're studying it, we want to apply it to our first, right? The Bible tells us take the, the log that's in your own eye before you go try to remove the splinter in somebody else's. We want to do that, but I also want to encourage you. You know why personal Bible study is so important in the life of the local church? Because I need you to be in your Bible. Your brothers and sisters in Christ need you to be in your Bible. Because they need you to be bold and to exhort and rebuke them. I need that in my life. I need people who know the word of God, who in gentleness and love will come to me and will exhort me and rebuke me. And they'll do this with all authority, but only the authority that comes from the word of God. Because what we see there is then Titus tells him, or excuse me, Paul tells Titus, let no one disregard you. I think what he's saying is, and Titus, you've got to live this way too. You can't go around exhorting and rebuke people and then live a different way. They'll disregard you for that. That's the easy way to get written off. That's the easy way to be look like a hypocrite. And so he's telling them, don't do this and live with one another. And I think that shows us that it is desperate. We're desperate for meaningful relationships in our lives because if you're going to exhort and you're going to rebuke, you better have some collateral. You better have some relational collateral before you go into that conversation or else it is not going to go over well. People need to not be able to disregard you because they've been walking the Christian life with you and they know that you love them. They know that you care for them. They know that you are for them, especially in hard conversations. And that's how we avoid being disregarded. We actually have to link arms with one another and have relationships that matter. See, that's why we do things like community group. That's why we do things like men and women's studies because we're praying as the leaders of your church, we're praying that as that's happening, that we're actually providing more avenues for relationship in your life, that you're meeting outside of those groups and you're getting in even smaller groups every now and then so that you can do things like James chapter five, verses 16 through 20 tells us. It says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Then it gives this example. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain because a righteous man's prayers accomplish much. And it says, and then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That passage is describing relationships where you have the ability, when you see your brother or sister wandering from Jesus, you can go and you can exhort them and you can rebuke them. You can lovingly bring the word of God to them and win back that brother or sister. And in doing that, you are saving them from death. God's means of preserving us in this life is the local church and us preaching to one another the gospel of grace and the gospel that heals, but it is a sword. But 
glory to God is the sword that makes the wounded whole. We, we do these things so that we might bring healing to one another. We must boldly declare what is right and gently rebuke each other when we do what is wrong. And that's what Titus is getting at, or excuse me, that's what Paul is getting at here in verse 15. But the reality is, is in order to experience change in your life, you've got to be submissive. You've got to be willing to hear that rebuke. You've got to be willing to hear that exhortation. And so while Christian courtesy is bold, our second point for today is Christian courtesy is also submissive. That we want to see that it is something that we have to submit. In verse 1 it says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. If we count there, verse 2 as well, there are seven things that he tells them to remind them of. And then, and then he starts talking about being submissive. And that word there for remind, it's actually in a tense that would be the way that you would keep reminding them. So he's not telling Titus, hey, just tell them once, and if they can't figure it out, forget about them. He's saying, Titus, man, you're going to have to come along with these people, and you have to remind them over and over and over again to live this way. And we know that because we're a forgetful people. I need to be reminded over and over again what it looks like to live God's way. And one of those ways here is to be submissive to the rulers and authorities into our lives, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. We have talked about submissiveness already in this study. We see that congregations are to be submissive to their pastors. These false teachers were to be submissive to the teachers proclaiming the truth. We see that younger Christians will be submissive to older Christians. We see that younger women were to be submissive to their husbands and bond servants to their masters. And in all of those cases, we know that we are calling people to be submissive to imperfect people. And I think we could all heartily agree that when we're told to be submissive to the government, to the rulers and authorities in our lives, we are being asked to be submissive to an incredibly imperfect system. But I think in the same way that we are submissive to those things and all those other things that I listed is as long as we're not being commanded to sin, we are to be submissive and to be obedient. So long as we're not being commanded to do anything that would dishonor God, We are to be obedient and submissive. That is a hard thing to do. That's a hard thing to do in all of those examples that I just gave because we're being asked to be submissive to people who are imperfect and we see their imperfections. And we see in people's imperfections, we don't want to submit to imperfect people. We say, I know better. But what we have to know as people who are saved by the gospel of grace is that I am dramatically imperfect. It's only in understanding my imperfections and entrusting myself to God and knowing that in trusting myself and submitting to imperfect systems, I am submitting to a perfect God. Am I able actually to live that out and do that? And so that's what we see. Christians are to be people who, who submit to those governments, but that's not all that Christians are supposed to do. Christians are also to be people who are ready to do what is good. We have our head on a swivel. We're ready to do what is right and good in our communities. Is that who we are are in our community? Do people look at you and think about you and think, yeah, that's the kind of person who's just ready to do what is good and right, who wants to be there, that wants to make this place a better place, who's willing to serve, who's willing to pitch in, who's ready to do the right thing? Because that's what these Christians were being told to do. 
In the midst of this imperfect culture, Crete was just a, a scandalous kind of place. It's where lying was normal. It's where sexual immorality was rampant. It was just a place where people were known to, to get drunk on a regular basis. That's the kind of thing. They were just a bunch of partiers, just total debauchery. And Paul's saying, man, you got to be ready to do what's right for these people. Submit to these imperfect systems, the imperfect government, and be ready to be there to do what is right and what is good. In the Old Testament, the Israelites, God's people, because of their disobedience, were carried off into exile. They were, again, really enslaved and, and told to be submissive to a massively wicked government in the Babylonians. And listen to what God says through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, 7. Talking about living in these places, living in, in these Babylonian cities, getting torn away from their homes. He says this, he says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. These exiles are being told, seek the good of the city where I have sent you. Even where you've been captured, seek its good. Hebrews then reminds us in Hebrews 13, 14 through 16, he says, For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of the lips that, that acknowledging his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So what's happening here? What we can see is in the New Testament, we can identify with Old Testament exiles because you know that this isn't your home. Hebrews is telling you, you're on your way to a new and better lasting city. The new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth, where we're going, when Jesus returns to take us to. That's where we're on our way. We are exiles, we are sojourners in this place. But we can seek the welfare of this place and do what is good. What he's saying is because you have a heavenly vision of what God is promising to do in the future, don't stop doing what is good now. That's what he is saying to, these, to the audience of the book of Hebrews. So we have to do this. We've got to ask ourselves some hard questions. How do I improve my neighborhood? How can I make this a better place to live? What do I need to do in order to be ready to do good? Are you ready to do good now? Are you ready to be someone who's there Some of that does look like making decisions and thinking down the long line. Where are you at financially in your life? Can we make good and right decisions so that I might be a part of doing what is good? Because listen, that takes some resources. That's going to take saying no to some things that you want in your life so you might say yes to the things that God would have you invest in here and now in this world, in your community. That's saying, what does my marriage look like? Are we at a place where we can say, listen, we, we, we have some uh, relational capital to give. We can be a place that hosts because if we're just fighting, bickering all the time, and you can't invite your neighbors into that. They don't want any piece of that. Are we ready to do what is good? Is that where we are with our, with our own children, with our own lives? Are we ready to do that? Are we using those kind of things. Are we using our singleness to the glory of God? Are we saying, listen, I have capacity that other people don't have. 
So I'm going to use that to God's glory and honor. I am ready to do what is good right here, right now, and enjoy this wonderful season, this gift, as what the Bible calls it, of singleness. Am I going to do that? Am I going to use those things to God's glory and honor? Am I ready to do what is good? Am I ready to retire? Am I going to go and collect seashells like John Piper talks about? Or am I going to go and when I retire, I'm going to give it to the Lord. I'm going to work hard for Jesus. Because listen, I'm preparing for the end. And I want to stand before him. Those are the kinds of things that we have to ask. Am I ready to do what is good and what is right? And as we ask these questions, as we look at our own lives and take stock and ask, am I ready to do this? We have to typically find is that doing good is often pretty ordinary. That doing good isn't always revolutionary and, and, you know, riots in the streets and do this. But doing good is often really ordinary. And so that's our final point this morning that I want to see from this passage is that Christian courtesy is common. Let me read verse 2 to us. It says, To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling. So again, this is the things that he's reminding them to do. Speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Here's what I mean by Christian courtesy is often very common. I don't think I read that verse and anyone in here was like, No way! Don't speak evil of people? I've never heard that before. Don't avoid quarreling? that's going to like revolutionary change my life. I've been picking fights everywhere I go. None of us look and are like, be gentle. Like, no way. I thought being harsh, that was the way to do it. Just being a real, real mean person, being mean spirit. Like, like we don't read these things and think like, no, really? That's going to lead to the good life? It is. This, This is the good life. It's telling you right here, This is what it looks like. It's the day in, day out, plain Jane, just normal courtesy to your neighbor. Loving your neighbor as yourself, day in and day out. Not every Christian is called to be David Platt or whatever Christian leader you want to throw in there. I guess good for them. It's cool. They do a lot of amazing things. But listen, most of us, and the kingdom of heaven are just called to move the ball just a little further down. Most of us are just called to ordinary, regular, good things day in, day out. Because while we look at that, and it might not be revolutionary, that doesn't mean it's small or meaningless. These are the kinds of sins that most of us are really comfortable confessing in your small group. I said something I shouldn't have said. I was a little harsh when I shouldn't have been, right? So a lot of times they get kind of this label, they're kind of socially acceptable, this label of kind of being like the small sins, like, right, you're kind of okay talking about that. Listen, they're not meaningless sins, and they do have huge impact on life, on culture, your neighborhood, your church, your groups that you're a part of. These are huge. If we're a place where people are gossiping and backbiting one another, behind each one another's back because you're speaking an evil of one another, that's going to destroy our church culture. We'll absolutely destroy it. If we're the kinds of people who are uh, a word, it's not a word that you hear very much, but pugnacious, meaning you're looking for fights, you're a brawler and you're a fighter, and maybe you really pride yourself in doing that, no one wants to be around that person. Nobody likes bullies. Don't, that, that's not the way of Jesus. That's going to really mess up your life. 
If you struggle with gentleness and you are just harsh because you think that's what gets things done, man, you're missing it. That's not what the Bible is telling you to do. We are to show perfect courtesy to all people. Showing courtesy, really simply defined, is just considering other people. That's what it means to be courteous, is to be considerate of others. Thinking about other people before you think about yourself. It's the simple golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't do things to other people that you want want them to do to you. Right? That's so simple. It's so common. It's really common sense. It's at least self-evident. I would say that. Even the non-believing world would say it is self-evident to obey these kinds of things. Even people who are not Christians would look at this and say like, yeah, it would be good. Don't talk evil of people. Don't be harsh. Don't be mean. Don't pick fights. We all see that. But that's what we want to see is that common Christian courtesy is, is just pretty common. But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. I used to work in an office setting, and in that office setting, we had a communal fridge, right? Communal fridge, massive blessing. You get to bring home stuff. It doesn't have to be just like sandwiches. You guys have things that are refrigerated. Put it in there, get it out, microwave it. We had this communal fridge. Well, one morning, I got there a little early, uh, me and another coworker, and we opened the communal fridge. Ugh! And it smelled horrible. It was terrible. And so we had uh, some pregnant ladies in the office, and they were like, someone has to do something. I'm going to have to go home. I can't take it. And so me and this, this other coworker of mine, she and I are just going through it and looking for whatever it was that smelled terrible, and we're finding all this stuff, and we're throwing it away, and then we find it. This little morsel of food. Now, I wish I could tell you what this food was, but it was so infested with fungi and whatever else kind of moldy nastiness was on it, that it it had like grown around the Tupperware. It had just grown and festered. And we got it out, and and I'm like running it out. My friend Logan's holding the door, taking it outside, sprinting through, and it stinks up the entire office. And that's what I think these little kinds of sins are like. They're the tiny little thing that makes its way to the back of the fridge that everybody forgets about. And it festers, and it grows, and it rots, and it decays, and it stinks. And before long, your tiny little hidden sin of gossiping or picking fights or not being a little too harsh or just not being considerate permeates its way throughout your life. And it's an awful stench. It makes its way throughout, throughout the people in your life, and they just they got to step back from you. And that's what we want to see, as I think that's what happens with these kinds of sins, these small little things. We can kind of kick it and put it into cruise control with this kind of stuff. I don't really need to be sanctified about that. I don't need to make war with these kind of things. And next thing we know is we've stunk up the whole place. And so while I want to say Christian courtesy is common, that sometimes you don't need to feel like you need to go and revolutionize the entire world, maybe just doing a nice thing for a neighbor is what God is calling you to do, I also want to say don't miss that that doesn't make it very, very, very meaningful. Because when we fail to do these things, we will be a stench to the world around us. Hypocrisy is one of the the worst things for Christianity. We make Jesus look bad in our sin when we're unrepentant in that. So I want to encourage us to look at that. Well, as we conclude this morning, again, like I said at the very beginning, this passage is just kind of a lots of do's and don'ts, like, actually like seven of them. Like, do these things, don't do these things. And again, the, the, the thing that I want us to, to not miss 
is one that we cannot divorce that from the gospel of grace that we're a part of. See, as, as Christians, we actually believe something about the gospel that makes passages like this a little more interesting, and that's this. We believe in what's called like the doctrine of exclusivity, in that this, we believe all Christians, all Orthodox Christians have held this belief and will continue, even though it is very, very culturally unpopular. We believe that Jesus is the exclusive or the only way to have a relationship with God and to experience eternal life. That it is only through trusting and believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ that he is who he said he is. He is the son of God who rules our lives, who lived the perfect life. He's the only one who can atone for sin. Nobody else can do that. That's what we mean when I say the doctrine of exclusivity. We believe that. So what that means is that when we say things like Christian fill in the blank, we're saying that there is something unique about that, right? So we say something like Christian courtesy, we need to know that we are saying there is something unique about the way that Christians show courtesy that is different than the non-believer. As we look at this, I, I look and I, and I don't see a ton of things in our passage this morning that the non-believer can't do, at least, at least on the surface, right? Like, they can be submissive to the government. They can be obedient. They can be ready. They can do good things, right? Non-believers aren't just, like, you know, murderers. and You know, like, not everybody who's not a Christian does that. They can do these good things. They can not gossip. They can not quarrel. We can kind of look at that. And so what I want to suggest is this, is there is something unique happening in this passage for Christians. Christians have something unique about what is good and right. And it's this. Is we need to recognize what the source is of all of this courtesy. The non-believer can have lots of different reasons for being courteous. We have one. We are courteous because God is courteous. We are kind because God is kind. We know the source of that. The Bible tells us in the book of Romans that, that non-Christians suppress the truth in unrighteousness but that they're still created in the image of God and their conscience bears uh, witness against them. What I mean is this, is the non-Christian is still made in the image of God. And even though they don't want to worship God, sometimes they still look like him. And they look like him when they show common courtesy to one another. Whether they like it or not, it's deeply ingrained and woven into who they are. And so they show courtesy and would recognize the world's a bit of a better place when we're all just showing courtesy. And what I want to suggest is this. The world is a better place when we show courtesy because the world was made by a courteous God. Because that is the, the very fabric of reality was created by that good and gracious God. So the world operates better when we do what he would have us do. We do these things recognizing the source we don't do them apart from the source. The what may often look the same. I mean, man, there are times, there are some people who are not Christians that I'm like, you're just a better human than I am. Like, it's what it feels like. Like, you're killing it. Like, I'm just not that good of a person, I guess. I don't know. But what I say is what's not what's different all the time is necessarily the what. Or we don't need to get nervous when, when the non-Christian does something good as if, like, that takes away credibility from the Lord. We need to say, like, yeah, I know you're going to do good things because you're made in the image of God. That's who he made you to be. But we also want to say is that when we do what is right, when we do what is good, 
It's an act of worship. For us, we're acknowledging the creator of things that are good and that he is kind and that he is gracious. We want to see that when I do things that are courteous, not only is it the what that matters to me, but it's also the why. Why is kindness kind? That's a hard thing to do. Things like courtesy, things like kindness, they're like really hard to define. Even when I defined it earlier, I kind of like used the word. Like being courteous is being considerate. Like what does that even mean? Other than we know what it means. There's this universal understanding of kindness and goodness. Why? Because God has created all of us and his image is on us. We are stamped and sealed in him. But we are also all tainted by sin and need to repent of our sins and trust in the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. Because it's only when we understand the why that the what really starts to matter. The why that God has made us to live this way and that he wants to redeem you from lawlessness, redeem you from your sinful ways so that you might be a people of his own possession, zealous for good works. That's what Titus 2, 13 and 14 tells us. And that's what I want to do. And I want to close with that thought. Yes, live out Titus 2, 15, 3 through 2. Don't divorce it from the gospel context. And remember who the source of all goodness is. All goodness, all of it, belongs to the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we love you. We thank you that we're able to come and and worship you with or without a screen. Uh, Lord, as we do that now and sing about you being our living hope, sing a gospel-saturated song about being far away from God, but how you brought us close as, as you died on the cross, resurrected from the dead, and we get to all sing and join in on that chorus of hallelujah, praise God. That's what that word means. Praise God that you have set us free from sin, that we can live out this way, that we can declare good things, that we can exhort and and rebuke one another, that we can be submissive even to imperfect systems and governments, and we can be obedient, ready to do what is good. God, that we don't speak evil, that we don't look for fights that we aren't harsh people, but God, we get to be gentle people. And that can be summed up, God, that we get to show perfect courtesy to all. God, we get to do that because we're no longer slaves to sin, because you have saved us. And Lord, I just pray if there's anyone here who does not know what that means, if there's anybody here, God, who doesn't understand that they are a slave to sin, And that even when they do good things, they're just doing it because they're created in the image of God. But even then, that they're bound by their sin. God, I pray that you would put in them a desire for freedom. Because as they see that, they'll see that the only place to get freedom is in Jesus. That he is the only one who can make an end to sin. Who can be a true and kind, compassionate master that we need. That we can submit to. Father, I pray as we gear up for our launch service in December, as we challenge people to invite to that, to be a part of that, that we are people who are living good lives, that we are not hypocrites going to our friends. And even if we are, that we would go and just confess our sin to them. Lord, fill us with boldness that we want to go out and do that because we know that there are people in our lives, in our community, who are slaves. They're slaves to sin. And God, we desire that they be free because where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And the spirit of the Lord is in everyone who professes Jesus Christ as Lord. 
who sees that he is the sacrificial lamb and the resurrected king. God, give us a passion for the declaration of the gospel. Change us. I ask this in your name. Amen.